the number one reason that an attempt to sell a company is unsuccessful is due to misplaced or unrealistic expectations. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am talking with none other than Bryce DeGroote, the president of Compass Advisors, a consulting firm that helps entrepreneurs achieve growth, capital, personal liquidity, and eventually the sale and exit of their company. Since 1991, Compass has advised in the sale of 155 companies and served hundreds more through exit planning and business valuations. More importantly than that, Bryce is a good friend of mine, and he's a very smart cat that's going to guide us through the conversation of considerations around buying or selling a portfolio. Bryce, welcome to the show. Jordan, good morning. I'm so glad we uh, we get to talk this morning and uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, let's dive right in. So just finish out the context. What exactly does Compass do? What's your background? This is my, uh, my first career. I picked up an MBA and then I've been, uh, for the last dozen years, I've been helping entrepreneurs grow value and mainly accomplish their exit strategy. And so help them gain personal liquidity, and capture the value that they've built over the years. You know, when we look at the private business transaction marketplace, it's it can be a very inefficient marketplace. The role that we serve as a firm is helping our clients to navigate that marketplace, make make it more efficient, and um, and help them optimize the results. Got it. All right. So I love that word, inefficient. Put some more color because I could intuit what that means. But what does that mean to you to say the market is typically inefficient? So the, the market is inefficient for a couple of reasons. So when we're talking about the, the purchase and the, the, the acquisition and the sale of private companies, the market is inefficient because it's the network effect. The, the fact that there's not a very efficient network to connect buyers and sellers. It takes generally a lot of a lot of work to find the right match and the best fit for for those type of, of transactions. So there's a lot of there's a lot of labor that goes into to that piece of it. Then there's also an expectation. It's inefficient because uh, there's a lot of myths and misplaced expectations around valuation and process and, and a lot of the factors around a business transaction. And so that creates an inefficiency that creates a friction in the transaction process that tends to slow down the process. It tends to reduce the, the uh, success rate of, of getting transactions done. Those are some of the factors that make it inefficient. So having worked in a bunch of different industries and much different verticals, what's the common thread of when people come to you wanting to think about a sale? What is typically the triggering event? In the mind of a, of a business owner, as they're coming to, to the conversation around an exit, their number one question is typically, what is my business worth? And then another question is around timing. When should I, you know, when should I sell? How can I, and, and how do I even approach this? So that the top three are value, timing, and where do I start? 
what percentage of people that come to you actually go all the way? Do you get a lot of folks that are early and just curious or are you typically having conversations with people that are really serious and ready to like take a transaction all the way to the finish line? So we, we talk with a lot of people who are doing early exploration and then some percentage of those will go all the way to the finish line and complete a transaction. There's a lot of exploration that happens that never gets to a transaction though. Let's now answer some of those key questions. So the number one question is, what is my business worth? And if you were here with me, I could press you and we could get out a whiteboard and you know give people the, the formula that they want. But the truth is, it's not that simple. There's a lot of nuance. So high level, what are the general factors, levers, and considerations that tend to drive value? Yeah. So at the highest level, value is about two factors, cash flow and risk. And so just to break down cash flow a little bit, it's really about the expected future cash flow of the, of the company. And so while historical cash flow can be an indicator, then a buyer will plug that into to their model and create a model of, of expected future cash flow. And that is the return that an investor gets for, for investing and in, in purchasing the business. Uh, the other side of the, the equation is risk. And, and there's a lot that goes into risk factors and that includes industry risks general business ownership risks such as legal and you know you know legal risk and 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 things like that and then there's the company specific risk which is those are company specific factors such as the team and the retention of the employees and retention of the customer risk and what kind of churn what kind of customer retention would you expect so there's there's a lot of company specific factors that come into it but all those things influence what that cash flow is worth to uh, mm-hmm. to a buyer. So at the very highest level, cash flow and risk is the valuation concepts. And then, you know, when we get down to the base level of the real world in a business, there's a lot of factors that influence those, uh, those two. Let's talk about how the asset is categorized. Within property management, there are two types of transactions that we see. There's the transaction that values the business as a business, as a complete thing with the brand, processes, staffing, culture, et cetera. And then there's the categorization that looks at it purely in terms of management contracts is the thing to be sucked out and flipped, basically. Do you see this in the businesses and the transactions that you work with where the buyer can have really two very different viewpoints on what it actually is that they're buying? Absolutely. And those two viewpoints will have a, can have a, a significant difference on how the, the company is valued and how a buyer is, the lens through which a buyer is viewing value. So the first category that you mentioned where the company is being acquired as a going concern business. In that case, the buyer is buying the goodwill. They're buying the brand. The, they're buying the, the team and the systems. And in that case, typically the buyer is looking to leave the organization more or less intact and, and then scale from there. In that case, really, the, the buyer is interested in the entire organization. And in that scenario, uh, the, the buyer is looking at a valuation that's based on a multiple of earnings, of, typically of EBITDA, uh, which is a measure of earnings, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's the acronym for, uh, for EBITDA. In that case, the buyer is looking at, they're very concerned about the profitability of the company. As the company is operating today, this is the earnings that it's generating, right? This is the cash flow it's generating. And then they'll, um, they'll still make some assumptions about the future in terms of can they, you know, what they can do with it in the future. So there still is that, that, that forward-looking perspective, but they're, they're very concerned about it as a, as a package deal. A case study of the first type of buyer. So 
if a couple of buyers that would that would buy a property management firm as a going concern would be at the at the small end, could be an individual entrepreneur who's looking to buy an existing property management company. They don't already have a, a company set up, so they're looking to buy it as a going concern as as the whole organization. Also, we find uh, we've seen some transactions where, let's say, a private equity firm is doing a platform investment. And, and they're looking to enter the property management space mm-hmm. and they're wanting to buy a, a company that is, is going to be their platform in that industry, right? Yep. Then to segue into the second type of buyer, typically that, let's say that private equity firm, they might do some add-on acquisitions, which is buying books of business to, that will essentially buying a set of properties and management contracts in that, in mm-hmm. that case. So the second type is, um, it's typically a company already in the industry. They already have their systems set up. They already have all the all the back end systems, and they're just looking to plug in more properties into their existing model. And in that case, they're just looking for that their due diligence is is typically more narrow in scope, and they're more concerned about what what is the portfolio of property contracts that I'm buying. Under that scenario, the valuation models that I've seen are more based on top line revenue because the buyer already knows what their profit margin is going to be in, within their operating structure, right? In their business model. I've seen companies in that, in that scenario, you might have a company with, let's say you have two companies with the same top line revenue, the same number of doors they're managing. Uh, and one company is at break even, their, pro- their net profit is break even. And another company has a 30% net profit margin. A company that's just buying a book of business, a, a you know a portfolio of of properties, I have seen them actually value those two companies very similarly because they heavily weight the the top line revenue in 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 those cases. Got it. Interesting. So are you saying that there is no right or wrong here in terms of the outcome for the for the business owner? Can a business owner just expect one of those scenarios to be implicitly better than the other? Because it seems like the situation where the buyer wants the, the whole enchilada is where you're going to get a larger degree of credit for what you've built. Yes. If, if a buyer's wanting to buy the whole, yeah, the whole enchilada, you, you are going to get uh, a buyer's going to place more value on the, the going concern operation that you've built. In the case of buying a book of business, typically they're going to you know, set aside some of the systems that you've built, potentially some of your people, your, your team, et, et cetera. But that's how they gain efficiency. So they may still be willing, from a valuation perspective, you may actually get a premium value from a buyer who is um, looking to cut some costs and gain greater efficiency by plugging it into their, um, their business model and their existing company. So from a valuation perspective, I think valuations can be very strong in either option. From a legacy and sustaining of your business operation perspective, you're, you're going to see in the second buyer who's just buying your book of business um, is, is typically going to take out some parts and pieces and, and only keep what they want. Got it. So if it's your baby and you're wanting to make sure it stays intact, then you should be just going eyes wide open. That makes sense. Absolutely. So what are some other things that people don't know? When you start this conversation, what are the biggest common unknowns for for sellers? So if it's a first time seller, um, there's often a steep learning curve around the some realities in the marketplace. There can be among among owners, there can be a, a view that if you know if I build it, they will they will come and pay me a premium value, and and, and sometimes that's a little bit simplistic in the sense that you have to build it right, and you have to have a very a lot of clarity around what what is driving the value and what buyers are looking for in the property management space. 
many studies have shown and our, our experience in our firm has shown that the number one reason that an attempt to sell a company is unsuccessful is due to misplaced or unrealistic expectations. Sure. That's the number one factor. And so as we think about unknowns, it's those, what should the expectations be? There's a few things that owners can do to, um, to create a winning exit strategy as opposed to one that is going to fall short of, uh, of their goals. That makes sense. And maybe a part of that is just the conversation around what the anticipated outcome is. And that relates to the conversation around what's the right time to sell, which is a really open-ended question. But let's just talk through some overall scenarios. There's the scenario where you're set for life, right? Anytime you're going from being bootstrapped to just grinding and, and maybe underpaying yourself to being able to sell and being set for life, Sounds great. We can just make a blanket statement that that's a wonderful outcome. And if you can achieve that and maybe you're ready for a break, go for it. But for most business owners within my industry, for most transactions that are happening within residential single family property management, it's not going to be that kind of a scenario. So taking that off the table for the moment, what are the other considerations that cause clients that come to you to, to want to actually sell? The primary motivation for driving a sale, for motivating a sale, is is personal motives of the owner. But usually, it's not as much industry factors. Usually, it's it's the the owner's personal uh, motives, and those motives could be um, it could be a health event. But more more commonly, what we see in our clients, it's either a serial entrepreneur who is ready to start the next venture, or it's the retiring owner. And so, what we see is it's an entrepreneur who's on the, the end of their, or, or wanting to slow down, or they're they're fired up about that next venture. So in either case, they've lost the fire for the business. Absolutely. And it's so important to complete an exit before losing the fire. If you wait too long and you've, you've lost the fire and that once the, the fire grows cool, then it, it always has an impact on business performance. And once you top out and you start coming down the other side, it's it's a lot harder to, to capture that value. And so the timing becomes very, very important. Yeah. Wow. What a big issue. We see this with sports performance, with company performance, getting out at the zenith, timing that, knowing when it's there, and then having the option to actually to sell at peak value is really challenging. But it makes sense what you're saying as opposed to getting well past your prime and just kind of grinding it out and having the business slowly erode value as you're just doing something that your heart's not in. Absolutely. Absolutely. That we see that a lot. So do you tend to work with more buyers or sellers? As a firm, we work with sellers. We're representing the, the, uh, the exiting entrepreneur. Bryce, talk to me a little bit about the difference between scale. So in the industries that you work in where the average transaction size is larger, let's say like north of 5 million versus smaller, south of of a million, what's going to be the difference in just kind of the the infrastructure that exists to facilitate larger deals versus smaller deals? So what we see in the larger deals is there's more infrastructure, there's more support by advisors, by, by professional advisors. And there's more defined marketplace. There's a more defined marketplace for uh, for transactions, and the the ability for sellers to reach buyers and and vice versa is is more efficient. And, and one reason it's more efficient is there's there's fewer larger deals, and, and there's fewer large companies. So when you look at the distribution of company size, once you get north of five million, there's a there's a smaller set of companies, and so it's very 
it's a lot more efficient to you know to transact you know those companies. It, it can be what we see on the on the smaller end. Um, uh, let's say companies under a million dollars. It's more. It's often more of a localized market. It's harder to find. It, it's more of a network based and localized market. It tends to be less less efficient. And those you know those companies sometimes don't have as much advisor uh, support behind them. Okay, so this is exactly the sweet spot of the types of, of clients that I'm interacting with. At least a fair number would be on the lower end of that transaction size. There is less infrastructure. There's less support. There's uh, fewer seller side representation options. What is your brief playbook for the one or two or three things that a potential seller could do to prepare for maximizing value even if they're not ready to do it this year or, or next year, maybe they're on a five-year time horizon. Absolutely. So as we talked about before, the number one factor that uh, prevents a, a sale from successfully happening is expectations, is unrealistic expectations. And so uh, on the flip side of that, we, we recommend a few things. And uh, one is early planning. And early planning involves beginning with the end in mind to know where you're headed with the business and to build the business so that it's a transferable business that will be appealing to a buyer three to five years down the road. The second is, I'd say, get educated. Uh, there's some great books out there, which I can recommend. There's seminars, and I have no connection to these books, but our clients have found them very valuable. Um, one is Walk Away Wealthy. It's an exit planning playbook. We found that to be helpful. Uh, another one is uh, by John Warlow. He's an Inc. Magazine columnist um, called Built to Sell. Um, that's another one that's been uh, been valuable. And so there's um, there's some books out there. There's some seminars and you know industry conferences that sometimes have have content on these topics. You know, get educated. Also, talk to your you know talk to people in the industry who have exited. You know, people you know through your your industry associations and and ask them deep questions about. What was the experience? What, what was the, the owner's experience in selling their company? What, what do they wish they would have known? And uh, to see it through the eyes of, of someone who has exited, is, it can be very valuable as well. So, so that second piece is, is get educated. The third thing is to build, build an advisory team. And for, for, it's important for a business of any size to proactively seek out um, an advisory team. And typically that includes an attorney. Um, an accountant to do some tax some tax planning. Typically, there's a, a financial advisor or wealth manager involved to do some planning, and there, there should be some discussion around not only what is the business worth, but whether whether you are the serial entrepreneur starting the next venture or whether you're retiring. The very critical question is after what is my business worth? Is what will I have left in my pocket after taxes, and what what are the net sale proceeds going to be? And so, so those are some conversations. That's a very important number to know before you start negotiating the sale of your business. A lot of negotiations have failed once the seller realizes what the tax bill is going to be. And so, uh, so be proactive. Work with your advisors to know that up front and to get ahead of that so that uh, and the more information you have, the more control you have, the, more, the stronger you'll be in your negotiation process. I like it. So a lot of these considerations to me are the things that a shareholder would be thinking about. And there are these different roles within the business of shareholder governance versus operator. And we tend to conflate these things and merge all those concerns together. But they are distinct considerations. What the operator wants to do, maybe the shareholder might have a conflict with. And if you can separate it out and really think cleanly, or at least 
make sure that distinct thought is happening in each one of those categories, it leads to a better holistic outcome. That long range planning, exit strategy, et cetera, is obviously a part of that. I do want to transition to talk about the benchmarking study, which I know you've taken a look at. And I wanted to hear some of your feedback on what stuck out for you or given the fact that you work in a number of different industries and verticals, what seemed unique or distinct within this vertical as opposed to the financial performance of the other industries that you looked at? And great job on the benchmark on the benchmarking study. I, I thought it had uh, some highly relevant and granular data that I think property management owners would be well advised to uh, to pay attention to. And uh, a couple of things that stood out to me: the, the distribution of profit margins in the industry is is remarkable. And, and one reason is, unlike other industries, let's say manufacturing or or other industries that have a lot of variance in potentially raw material costs and and a lot of different cost inputs into their cost structure. Property management, it's a fairly homogenous set of inputs that goes into managing properties. I would expect a tighter range of, of profit margins in that industry. So there's a super wide range. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. You know, we should uh, take notice. There was about 90 points variance in terms of the low end to the high end on profit margin. But obviously, we were looking at adjusted profit margin, which was really important because we wanted to see financial reality and to get rid of all the distortions. How do you approach distortions around profitability and the distortions introduced by owner compensation and how that may be handled when you're doing a a valuation? I was pleased to see that uh, you adjusted and you normalized owner's compensation as part of the study because uh, there's a wide variance in, in what owners pay themselves you know, from zero up to several times, maybe the, the market salary range. It's critical when doing any sort of financial analysis or valuation analysis, it's, it's critical to normalize the owner and management compensation to market norms. So this is just the baseline kind of stuff you do. You absolutely make the same consideration to sanitize the financial performance. Absolutely. Awesome. What else stuck out to you? So one other thing that I that stood out to me in the in the benchmarking study is the the slide on uh, management fee dollars versus average rent, which shows that the the dollars of management fees per unit generated are fairly consistent across different rental you know from high and low rent properties, and so the the percentage rate of the management fee essentially co- helps compensate for the you know high and low rent properties. And so it was in, It was interesting how both the profitability as well as the revenue generated across high and low rent properties was relatively consistent. It was a lot more consistent than, uh, than I would have expected. I've, I've had some companies that, some management companies that focus very, you know, very heavily on, on getting the high rent properties and, and, and more of a premium portfolio. I was pleased to see that there's also an opportunity to profitably Manage properties that are lower rent, uh, lower rent properties. Yeah, absolutely. The way that I would put that is that the level of variance within the management fee was much wider than the actual outcome in terms of the actual dollars captured in terms of management fee revenue. And I think that just speaks to the level of exactly what you said, focus and priority that should be placed on the management fee percent as being this highly deterministic outcome. 
within the business. What we saw is that you can make money on the high end of the market. You can make money on the low end of the market. We did see revenue per door as being a significant factor. Now, the reason for that, my opinion, at least what I would read into that is that the correlation between revenue per door and overall profitability could be purely a byproduct of rents, or it could be a byproduct of fee maximization and the degree to which you have ancillary fees and that you're aggressively fighting for uh, the full value that you provide. There's a lot of different ways to read these numbers, but there's a ton of information in the benchmarking study. I think that this sort of information, this sort of analysis is kind of a starting point for having a more informed conversation and trying to bridge the chasm between the buyers that come in, the smart money that's doing the math, that's using metrics to figure out where to deploy capital. That's what's happening. Money doesn't drop down from Wall Street on a whim or because somebody knew a guy. It's because there was a investment thesis that happened. And on the other end of the spectrum are small business owners that are asking themselves, you know what? If there's money in the bank and I'm making a decent income, do I really have to worry about these numbers? I mean, I've heard that kind of feedback and everybody just has to decide what is it for you? Is it a income stream? Is it a business? What is the destiny and the end state that you want to pursue? And what are the what's the level of clarity and insight that you need in order to hit that target? That's the opportunity that I see in taking a more data-driven approach and doing what you're talking about, which is just thinking about the, the long-term goal. An owner is is well served. By identifying is this is this a lifestyle business that I am I'm comfortable with where things are at or if, am I really am I trying to drive value and I think your benchmarking study gives a, a lot of insight into the levers of value that an owner can can pull and 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 focus on as they're preparing to exit if if value maximization is the goal and and so I think there, there's a there's a lot of impact there whether it's tracking your churn rates and and trying to reduce those and I was talking with a, a company yesterday about their churn rates. They, you know, admittedly hadn't given a lot of attention to that. And, and so finding a few key metrics that, that you can track, it can be incredibly valuable as you, as you work toward building value to, uh, toward an exit. So Bryce, for folks that are in the operate day-to-day operations grind and hustle, and they're thinking about valuations, but it's not immediately on the forefront of your mind, you've seen it from the reverse position. You've seen the subset of companies that achieve maximal value when they sell. Operationally, what were they doing three, four, five years prior to selling that allowed them to get in that position before it was even on their mind? So there's a few key things. Typically, as they're making operational decisions, they had the the end goal, they had the exit goal in mind from the beginning. And so they, they built the business operationally so that it was not dependent on, let's say, the owner, for example, to drive operate like day-to-day operations, but also the sales function. You know, is the owner doing all the sales, being the, the sole rainmaker? Or is there um, is there a team that can generate and can keep the business going without the owners, you know, without the owner being, you know, being present? All right. So let's dig into that one. Key man discount. What does that mean? How does it work? What does it look like? Well, if a buyer is going to invest in a, in a company and, and buyers are, buyers are savvy, they, they dig into what they're buying. And one of the things they look at is, can the business, is the business sustainable? 
And who are the key roles and, and how are those roles going to be filled into the future? Can the business keep performing if the owner steps out is the key question. And if not, what is who's the successor to the owner's roles? And so what we like to do is have our owners identify their job description. And typically in a small company, the owner wears a lot of hats. It might be sales. It might be um, general management. It, there might be some customer service in there. There might be managing you know, cash flow and banking and financial management. Um, there might be human resources and hiring and firing. There, there's, there might be a lot of different roles, but the idea is to break that down and delegate as much as possible so that the, the company can continue performing without that key person in place. So the warm, fuzzy feeling I get of thinking that I'm the smartest guy in the room, the company couldn't work without me, it's directly related to the degree to which I can say that this is a true asset that has value divorced from me. Absolutely. It's directly correlated. The, the degree to which the, the weight that the owner is pulling in the company is inversely correlated to the value of that company as a, um, as a separate asset, you know, as, a, as an independent going concern asset. Talk to me about clawbacks on both sides of the deal. How are those typically structured and how often do you see them coming up post-transaction? In a property management industry, in a service-based business with you know, management contracts, uh, we, we often will see a claw, some kind of clawback provision. And those can look a lot of different ways. Um, sometimes it, it looks like an earnout, and it's based on kind of revenue, kind of top-line revenue-based um, models. Sometimes there's specific you know, clawbacks for specific accounts, and it's essentially a, a way of adjusting the purchase price in terms based on future events that happen. That is is the way I would you know describe a, a clawback in general, and what it does is it is it shares the risk, right? A buyer is coming in, and, and, and what we see is that we see a lot more clawbacks in earnout type of scenarios when the owner is is running the show and and doing all the rainmaking and 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 all that, and and the reason is the buyer is willing to pay a higher value if the business performs, but there's a lot of uncertainty around whether that business can keep performing. And so it, it's a, it's a risk sharing mechanism that in what it does, it incentivizes the seller to continue pulling some weight through a transition period and doing whatever they can to maintain the business and, and uh, keep, keep the revenue rolling uh, through that transition. What are typical durations of that phase? Um, so we've seen them anywhere from six months to to three years, typically. I mean, they, they could go longer, but a lot of water has passed under the bridge after three years. So uh, so typically, it's six months to three years. What are some other critical contingencies or considerations around key terms that you see being really significant value drivers in the transaction? Yeah. So uh, as far as key terms go, I mean, it, it comes down to total valuation and then how it's paid out. Is it cash at closing or is it on a note or an earnout type of basis? A note would be a fixed payment over time, whereas an earnout would be this variable based on performance, variable payments. Um, and so th those are some of the key factors. I think the other key factors are around, it's typically, and this is the part of the, you're getting into the, the legal terms in the, of the sale agreement. Um, there's going to be some representations and warranties in the agreement. There's going to be some indemnification, which is just basically a way of the both parties are making guarantees to each other of basically, I've told you the truth. I'm, I'm selling you an asset that is, um, is performing and there's no skeletons in the closet. And so those are some key terms that are um, that typically the, the legal team will, yeah, that will develop, but it's really important for sellers to be protected on, on that, uh, on that basis. And some other key terms are, 
I think around transition expectations and roles, there's been some, um, we've seen some messy scenarios. If the role of the seller in the transition phase is not clearly communicated and agreed in advance, there can be some misplaced expectations and it can get messy. And so often there's a, there's a handoff period where the owner is, um, you know, is, is handing off management to, uh, to the new ownership. And that, that's an important phase to, uh, to understand and to define clearly. If it gets messy, do you typically see that around the seller, around over-involvement or under-involvement on behalf of the seller post-transaction? You can go both ways. Yeah, you have the sellers who can't let go, and then you have the sellers that are, they get their check and they're gone, right? <laughs> I'm sure. I could see it. So if somebody was wading into this process and they're intimidated for a couple of different reasons, number one, they don't know what they don't know. Number two, the heaviness of it. You know, if I was to have this conversation, is this hours and hours of NDAs and, and due diligence? I and mean, how much work should people anticipate as they wade into this process? And how does that work get distributed over the different phases? So, so when you think of the, the, the phases of the transaction process, uh, there's an initial introduction to a buyer. There's some Initial information sharing, we call that pre-due diligence. Um, so you share some initial financial statements and, and so forth. You'd sign, the buyer would sign a non-disclosure agreement, the NDA. Then typically there'd be an offer in the form of a letter of intent. And then you have some negotiation and then due diligence and then the closing documents and, and the closing process. And so as we look at the workload, it depends a lot on how, how much the owner is relying on advisors through the process. Do they have, you know, how much are they relying on advisors or, or how much they're doing it themselves? If there's a full team of advisors in place, then, then typically the, the business broker or merger and acquisition advisor, M&A advisor would be handling a lot of the relations with buyers and NDAs and information sharing on the early phase. And it ramps up once you get to the offer stage. Then there's then there's some investment of time into negotiation. But then the biggest investment of time typically is in due diligence for the owner. That's typically the highest workload, and it's always more invasive. I always advise owners to expect it to be twice as invasive and twice as much work as you as you might imagine. Because you know, think of it from a buyer's perspective. Due diligence is really an opportunity for the buyer to understand the asset they're buying. Because there's a, there's a big familiarity gap um, between buyer and seller, right? The, the seller, let's say they, they started the company 10 years ago or whatever, and, and they built it from scratch and built it from the ground up. And they're, they're familiar with every detail in the company, right? They know every client. They know, um, they know everything. Um, and whereas a buyer coming in, they're, they're in the dark. Um, and so due diligence is, is how they get up to speed and it is how they... They open up the hood and dig into what is this asset we're actually buying. And so due diligence is a very important time of disclosure where the more that can be disclosed and the more organization and clarity around the data and documents that are being shared, um, the greater the buyer's comfort level is with, with the purchase and, and, and the lower their risk, you know, their, their perception of risk. And so accommodating the buyer doing due diligence is a very important phase of disclosure. And now the due diligence process should be fairly portable, right? If I did the due diligence process for buyer A and it falls through at the 11th hour, when we go to buyer B, I've already done a lot of, of, of work that I'm going to get credit for, right? Absolutely. It should be set up in a, a secure digital you know, data room or folder where, you know, a, box, a Dropbox style folder where they, all the documents are, are available electronically and organized by legal documents and by management contracts and by financial statements. And, 
you know, by employee documentation and, and all of that. And so, um, so yes, it should be portable. And a lot of that can be done in advance so that it's not a, a time crunch. A lot of that can be done, can be developed early um, so that it's not a big event. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. So the order of operations here is having the initial conversation, maybe going under NDA, a letter of intent or, or an offer, then due diligence, then some potential renegotiation, then a transaction. Did I get this right? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and ideally, most of the negotiation happens before um, the deep due diligence, just because sometimes there's legitimate reasons. If there's new information discovered in due diligence that's negative, um, the buyer may want to renegotiate. It, it can also be used as a, as a way to, to, to try to retrade the deal and, and uh, get a discount for no reason. And that's, I think it's important for it, the, the more an owner is prepared and their advisors are prepared for due diligence and the more they understand, if they can get out ahead of any potential um, red flags or concerns that might come up in due diligence, if, if you get those on the table up front and, then, and you negotiate the deal, you agree on a price then you have a, a very strong position to to hold the line on price and terms and, and not renegotiate. And so we, we recommend get out ahead of any issues that come up. It's, nice. it's always better to tell the buyers in advance if there's a, a concern or an issue um, rather than let them, letting them discover it in due diligence. Because they'll not only, not only does it undermine trust if they discover it right in due diligence, it undermines trust, but then they'll try to renegotiate the deal. And so... Uh, outcome is always better. Get a, get ahead of those things. If you tell the story the right way up front, uh, you're you're better off. Wow, that's some gold advice there. What about involving your team? At what stage do you think it makes sense to involve the team about and notify them and get them involved in the process? I would say involve the team as early as possible. Ideally, three to five years out, and and that involves some initial conversations around exit options. Your, your intentions, your goals, and getting some counsel on how to what to do be, you know between now and the exit to uh, to help you accomplish those goals to optimize your uh, your outcome. Wow, wow! Because I, I I was thinking like in terms of the immediate transaction, your answer was great. Your answer was like three years before the transaction. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Great. However, but it's I would say it's it's a it, it's a lighter conversation three years out, and then when the transaction is is imminent then you're engaging a lot deeper with your advisors at that point, And you're spending a lot more time with them. Love it. So the final question I want to get some feedback from you on is talk to me a little bit about predatory brokerage practices in any given market. There's going to be the good. There's going to be the bad. What might be some red flags that a seller might pick up on if they're approached by somebody that says, Hey, I represent a buyer looking for looking to purchase management companies Etc. Are, are there any red flags that that would kind of put you on notice? One tactic is to, and that I would advise owners to steer away from, is a broker who says, "I have a buyer for your business, and I want you to sign some kind of a listing agreement, you know, locking you up for a period of time to let me market your business." And um, the reality is, they probably don't have a buyer for your business. They're just fishing. They're just using that as a kind of as the bait to, to lead gen. The it's like lead gen. It's lead gen, right? And that's um, terrible. And the reality is they do have buyers, right? They might have buyers for a property management business, but I think there there needs to be a lot of understanding. I think there needs to be clarity and disclosure around are you representing the buyer? Are you representing me? What you know just just uh, there needs to be an understanding around who's representing who in that case. I think the other the other thing is 
I, I would ask for disclosure around what is the success rate for clients that you, if you're representing a business owner, um, how many transactions do you get closed? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of brokers that will sign up as many sellers as possible and just kind of see what sticks, kind of throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And then in that case, there's not a lot of value add advisory. It's more of a of a listing service. Arbitrage. It's a listing service. It's arbit yeah. And so there's not a lot of value added advisory. So at least you know, I recommend as owners are looking for advisors, um, and specifically we're talking about like, a, for example, in this case, you asked about brokers, like a business broker or M&A advisor, is to look for someone that, that is um, willing to advise you and sometimes tell you what you may not want to hear, but tell you like the real truth about this is, this is what you need to do to sell your company and optimize the outcome. Look for that type of advisor and, and your outcome will, um, will be better. And what's a healthy success rate in your mind if you were to ask somebody, well, what percentage of your transactions complete? Yeah, I mean, definitely over um, over over fifty percent. I mean, the, the, there's some solid companies that have like fifty to ninety percent success rates in getting transactions closed. Wow. So the scenario that you mentioned, somebody comes and they say, I've got a buyer for your business, that could be an immediate conflict of interest. If they have the buyer under contract and now they want to get you under contract, that's the point that you're making there? Absolutely. Yeah, there could be conflict of interest. I think it's a false pretext for selling the company. I think the key question is, is it the right time? Is it the right? And, and sometimes they'll market, they'll, they'll take you to that specific buyer that they're talking about, or they'll, they'll, they'll want to market you more broadly to a lot of buyers. But the, the real question is, is this the right time to sell the company? Is this the right time for the owner, for the market, the, you know, for the business? Is it, is it ready? And if it's ready, then let's go to market and find the best buyer. But um, whether or not that broker happens to have one buyer in their pocket is less relevant to it's really it's not the primary determining like the primary determining factor for optimizing the outcome for the owner for the seller is not that that broker happens to know somebody who's looking for property management business because there's tons of buyers out there there's yeah. it's more about is it the right time is this the time to optimize value and are we um, are we prepared to go do that anyone can connect with a buyer. That's really, it's just not as compelling as maybe it sounds in, in terms of, of the actual value add to the process. Yeah, totally makes sense. Do you believe that there is any such thing as a standard neutral EBITDA multiplier? Meaning if you look across industries, do you think that just based on cash flow agnostic of industry, do you believe that there is any kind of like a, a baseline EBITDA multiplier that's just accepted as being the going rate based on cash flows? Uh, no, there's no single multiplier. And, and because the, the multiplier is basically, we talked about value being based on cash flow and risk. The EBITDA in this case is the cash flow piece. And the multiplier is basically the risk piece. And it's based on industry. So every industry is different. Um, each individual company is different within the industry. Um, you have different growth rates. You have different risk factors within each company. And so uh, there's really not a single number. I mean, we could talk about some ranges, I mean, we've done, you know, transactions from three to, to 10 times, you know, even, you know, recently. I mean, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of variance there, uh, but I couldn't pick a single number that could apply broadly. Fair enough. I think that's a comforting answer. It depends. It's not satisfactory, but it, it makes sense that it's going to be based on what you've built. And some people have built something worth a lot more than others. 
Bryce, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. For folks that want to get in touch, learn more about your business, what's the best place for them to go? Sure. The best place would be our website, which is www.compass-advisors.com. Um, so our firm is called Compass Advisors. I'd be happy to engage in conversation with owners. All right. So guys, if you want more information, Bryce would be a great guy to get in touch with. I've known him for a decade plus, super savvy. And um, he's he's been in it. Like he's, he's an operator. He's got the entrepreneur's DNA. He understands what the journey looks like. So Bryce, I do appreciate you coming on the show and let's stay in touch. Jordan, it's been a fun time. Thanks. And I uh, look forward to next time. All right. Talk soon. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.